Oh, yeah. So just on the Anon piece, which, which is interesting. And oh. when I was talking to somebody randomly at this party, they were like, we, sh we shared telegrams and I used my Anon because that's on my telegram. And he was like, oh, you're such and such. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> okay. And like, I recognize that it's, it was a much, the perception of that was much different than the perception of me, like as I am. And mm. what I found is that like in certain ways, like, like I can't be discriminated against as an anon because I don't have a technical computer science background, mm. but like I'm learning this as I go. But as an Anon, nobody knows what my background is. So they just evaluate me based off the merits of the argument. They don't actually evaluate it based off of like any kind of discriminatory, like arbitrary, um, I don't know, like uh, measures of legitimacy, um, yeah. if you want to call them that. So that's, that's kind of why I've decided to like choose that path and, and keep them separate. I mean, at some point, like if one, if one of the other gets big enough, like, I'm sure it will come up, and I'm sure I'll have to deal with it at some point. Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to the 20th episode of the LLB Podcast. Today, we have a continuing story in the crypto space. Uh, as everyone knows, there's a lot of drama going on from the past week. Uh, on Friday, I already did a recording on the FTX collapse. And as that was going on, a lot has happened already from the CEO having to step down to, I think there was rumors yesterday that FTX was hacked and it seems to be confirmed now. So I guess we'll get into that later. But before we begin, we'll get a short introduction from our guests, Patrick Ambers, or formerly as I know, Pat. Together, Pat and I have a long, long history together. Actually, Pat was my first business partner ever back in university when we were in the hedge fund space. So this is a very exciting episode to kind of get back together, chop it up again. And uh, Pat has gone through a lot of different things with his career since uh, our time at hedge funds, universities, to prop trading, to working in traditional retail space, to joining Amazon, and now becoming a crypto researcher. So Pat, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and how you related to crypto? Sure. Um, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. I would say, um, primarily, I focus on doing protocol research, uh, trying to understand from first principles the nuances of the technology, uh, and then from there, be able to, I'd say, make some like broader distinctions and classifications about um, ideas. Uh, and uh, most recently, I've been doing some research with Ernst & Young. Um, my research has primarily focused on uh, MEV, uh, which uh, you might know, uh, minor extractable value or maximal extractable value. Uh, also, some risk frameworks on different DeFi tokens. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, some other things on scalability and roll-ups uh, and ZK uh, proofs and things like this. Um, you're going to have to help break some of those uh, terms down. So I, I am not a crypto native, so I, I'm a... I'm still trying to figure a lot of this stuff out, so maybe you could help explain uh, some of those concepts. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess maybe a little bit more background. Um, when I initially got interested in crypto was uh, post uh, March 2020 when we had COVID lockdowns and the Fed bailout, and uh, having spent some time in markets, 
I was very aware of the after effects of quantitative easing and the opportunity to front run it basically uh, and um, position correctly. And so um, I'd recently just been laid off from um, one of my jobs and I had some more time on my hands. And so like I really dug into Bitcoin, uh, started to understand the technology and then got a little bit bored of Bitcoin uh, after a couple months and uh, started to learn about Ethereum. And then in 2021, got very active uh, doing DeFi on chain uh, and then very active uh, um, doing cross chain stuff and then uh, NFTs and, and whatnot. And uh, I would say that's that's my story. Um, I've done transactions on, I don't know, countless, you know, 25 plus chains, whatever is out there. Um, I've used pretty much every kind of DeFi protocol that there is. It doesn't make me special. There's a lot of DGENs that have done that. Um, but it, it's given me a perspective on, on um, the tech from a user's perspective, but then also like from a high level, um, going through the source code, going through um, the specifications, the white papers, um, you know, research posts, things like this. Uh, of it I don't understand at first, but um, you know, building some deeper, you know, just layering out the time and also talking to more people and learning you know, what's what's stuff to look at and these problems and things in the space. So. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know if that answered your question. Okay. No, I mean, I think that's, that's probably good enough. I mean, if, if I keep asking too much, we'll probably go in a deep, dark rabbit hole and, and not come up. So, um, let, let's, let's talk about what is currently happening then. So what, what is your take on what has unfolded in the past week? And I know this is probably just the tip of the iceberg, like everyone's talking about, and you know, on my last session, I have a pretty good idea of what led up to the events from the past three months ago. But I mean, I like to hear a different perspective, maybe like maybe from different angles or maybe uh, some deeper insights. Right. So uh, as we know, FTX sure. was the third largest exchange in the world. Um, man, th from my understanding, this there was, was this was like um, a result of some type of systemic contagion from you know events unfolding from Luna to Celsius to all these ex all these comp like uh, I don't know what you call them like well, I guess uh, <laughs> Luna is a coin and then Celsius was a crypto company of sorts right but they all have exposures of each other's currencies a lot of illiquid assets on each other's balance sheets and then from my understanding that is what what that was probably the inherent risk that was ongoing it only kind of just manifested from you know people doing uh reporting and investigation and then finally as usual twitter kind of was the impetus from my understanding of what blew up everything from one tweet to the second tweet to everyone doing business on twitter now for some reason in the crypto space um so i don't know what is your take on and uh, of what happened with FTX. And I remember like when I first asked you about it last week, you had some pretty good insights and maybe you could reiterate some of your thoughts about, you know, people holding assets on exchanges and, you know, the nature <laughs> of that. So, uh, but, you know, your take and then maybe your, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, so like at a really high level, I think it's just very unfortunate. Um, yeah. I think it's obvious that there was fraud here. And I think a lot of people will try to, dumb it down or water it down over time. Yeah. But um, clearly uh, customer deposits were being uh, used for um, leveraged activities 
Uh, and uh, as a result of this, um, you know, customers lost funds or actively losing funds. It's, un it's unclear, if, you know, what portion of funds will be recovered, if anything, um, ultimately. Yeah. But this is almost like an iteration on MF Global and, and John Corzine. So, I mean, basically, the crux of it comes down to is, um, and we can get into the background of all this other stuff and like also bigger picture later. But what it comes down to is that, you know, S SBF started this hedge fund, Alameda Research. Uh, they did a lot of tr trading um, on chain, off chain, uh, did a lot of market making. But in order for them to grow, um, they needed basically uh, under collateralized loans. And in crypto, everything on chain is over collateralized, with the exception of like a couple protocols, in, which, in my opinion, are extremely questionable, uh, i.e., Maple Finance. But everything else is over collateralized. So if you're going to borrow, um, you know, uh, fifty dollars on chain, you have to post a minimum collateral of, let's say, I don't know, a hundred dollars, depending on you know uh, who you're who you're borrowing from and what the terms are, uh, what contract you're using, etc. So anyway. They were soliciting people in 2019 saying, hey, you know, we can give you 15, 20%, you know, APR, just loan us, you know, $100 million or loan us $20 million, whatever it is. And people were laughing at them and saying no. And this was, if you recall, on the back of like a really bad 2018 for crypto. So like in 2019, people still weren't back on the crypto bandwagon. So what did they do? They decided to print um, or they decided to create FTX. Uh, and so FTX became this exchange, and then Alameda now would market make for FTX. And so how would this get financed? Well, FTX would just create this FTT token, give a large allocation to Alameda, um, make the token go up in value, and allow F FTT to be posted at FTX as collateral. And then FTX basically is, is then able to take you know, any kind of user deposits that they want and give them to Alameda to go, you know, do right. DeFi games or, you know, market make That's on right. OTC, right? That's really the crux of the problem. Um, and, you know, it's, it's still unclear, you know, where and how they lost all of their money and what their exposure was. My theory based off of what we know today is that they likely got taken out during the Terra Luna collapse um, and FTX bailed out Alameda rather than just saying, you know what, let's take the pain and let's deal with this. They said, no, you know, uh, and they showed this very strong position, you know, and SBF came out looking like, you know, people, the media labeled him as like JP Morgan or something like this, right? Like as a savior. <laughs> this is, this is the problem um, when people start doing that, right? Very Theranos, like. A hundred percent. So, um, you know, and then. Basically, it came to a head last week because um, people have observed SBF lobbying U.S. Uh, Congress people. And there's this bill, the DCCPA, that you're, I'm sure you're aware of, that has some stringent regulation for DeFi protocols um, and also stablecoin issuers. And the regulation is really loose in terms of like the verbiage. And so like anything yeah. can be inserted in there pretty much. And SBF is really pushing and advocating for this. And um, people in the community are saying, what the fuck are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. You know, <laughs> this is not our values. Yeah. Um, and so he had a very public debate with a long-term OG in the space named Eric Voorhees. He's um, been very involved in the Bitcoin, um, Ethereum space even, um, uh, Thorchain, et cetera. He had a very public debate 
Um, and Voorhees basically just owned him in the debate. And so mm. people got really upset that, you know, SBF got owned in the debate and then didn't acknowledge like that he was wrong about these principles. After that, somebody leaked Alameda's balance sheet and people saw Alameda's balance sheet really just had a bunch of shit coins on there, mm. mainly FTT. And so people realized, oh my God, Alameda doesn't have any cash. They're probably insolvent. And then so basically people started to sell FTT immediately. Um, and then people started to withdraw from FTX. That's like smart money was like, okay, I'm pulling off of FTX now. And then all the shenanigans started with freezing withdrawals and, you know, up to last night when yes, like a rogue employee did uh, hack some funds, swap some stake ETH for ETH, swap some USDT for DAI because DAI can't be censored. So like thinking that what, they're going to the, get away with it. What's the rumor on, on which employee this is? I mean, oh, of man, course, it's a rumor, get, though. I can get it for you. Oh, no, it's not that important. I can get it I, for you. It, it was identified because of the employee's GitHub commits. Like, the employee oh. for the entire year didn't commit to GitHub, and then, like, all last week, all of a sudden, out of the blue, is committing to GitHub <laughs> like crazy. That's all. So. That's, yeah, that's, that's good. That is crazy. It's, so, are these GitHub commits, are these are, what, internal GitHub company only can see, or these are not, like, anything public, right? No, they were public. You could you could oh, see them. What, whatever he was building. Um, is this because of the nature of blockchain? So, or or why why is GitHub commits public in this sense? Um, well, because people use GitHub to like build out. I'm gonna butcher this because obviously I'm not a developer, right? But like people use GitHub to um, upload and store their their code so it can be forked, right? Um, yeah. And it could be worked on by other people. And so you have this repository and you store your, your basically your active code in there. And usually, like, if you're going to do something nefarious, you probably wouldn't want to upload it to GitHub. But some people just don't, like, think about things like this and they just do, well, yeah, do maybe, this anyway. Maybe so. I, yeah, because maybe I don't understand how... GitHub is used in the crypto space because, I mean, typically it's just in, internal code and your team will see all the commits. So um, I, maybe maybe it was someone on the team who leaked it out that they saw mm -hmm. all these commits going live and identified the employee maybe. So, um, yeah, but okay, I, I, was, I was just joking that maybe it was just SBF. He's going to take some money and run and it's just some fake employee profile. <laughs> it's, I mean that that guy is in so much trouble now. Okay, but let's let's go back to the story. I think there's two very interesting lines that you brought up. Um, one, the first line okay. is I'm very curious about is the structure of Alameda and FTX because I think I think you put it very succinctly, which I haven't read anywhere like that, like breaking it down in that kind of way. And then secondly is the the regulation piece, which I, it seems like from what you're telling me, uh, SBF is the one who kind of. Uh, is the impetus of maybe regulation to come and like the, the fallout just makes yeah. it way worse now because you went to regulators and now you're in the crosshairs and maybe even screwed over some regulars potentially if they were somehow involved. And as we know, politicians always love getting in on uh, early trades whenever they can. So, uh, so, uh, so what, so can help me understand, like how was this structured and not flagged? You know, when Alameda is market making, for FTX and like, shouldn't the 
shouldn't there be some understanding of what's on the balance sheet or where's the accountability mechanism? Like why, why was this allowed to be structured this way early on and grow so big? It's, it just doesn't make sense to me. Because the way, why was that bad to begin with? I mean, because right, it technically seems like it was happening and it was working fine. Like, I guess, that's, I guess the counter way to think about this is like, how could have they structured it in such a way that, you know, they did it in that same way, but it was in a positive way or in a way that made more sense, right? So there's like, I don't know, maybe help like, help me understand the nuance of that relationship. Well, like the problem you have is that um, they're, they're pitched, they were pitched as separate entities, but everybody knew that they were the same entity yeah. and everybody knew that SPF was really just um, running Alameda. He had this guy named Sam Tribuco in charge uh, for some time. Uh, Tribuco actually resigned about a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, which is interesting flag, in, huh? in retrospect. Yeah, retrospect, obviously. Yeah. Um, but like ultimately, if you have an exchange, right, and then you also have a market maker and the market maker is trading against your customers, that's not really great, right? Because then your customers are facing adverse selection from you, not just like some random market maker that you hire. Correct. Like yeah, it's a huge Genesis conflict of interest. Or, yeah. But I mean, this this happens in the, you know, fiat a modern financial system too, right? Yeah. And like, like houses always front run. They know the books of the customers. Mm -hmm. There is some incest between, not directly legally, and also not as bad as Alameda and probably um, FTX, but like those relationships, it's a circle. And I think that's the whole thing with TradFi, traditional finance, right? Is that that's like the boys club and then DeFi, like in like DeFi and crypto is supposed to be the opposite of that, right? So it's, it almost seems like a replication of what happened and the fact that he also went to approach like, you know, uh, regulation is like just the most ultimate tradfi move too, right? So it's like, it's just, um, so what, what was inherently, like, I still don't understand. I mean, I think you, I need to go back and probably listen to what you said, but like okay. the way they structured it, what was the biggest problem so, in it? So the biggest problem in it is they, it's a problem that is inherent in, in crypto because of, you have an ability to issue or create a token. And so FTX accepted their own token, FTT, mm -hmm. as collateral oh, for loans, okay. for under-collateralized loans, not over-collateralized loans. And even if they were over-collateralized loans, because like that stuff is still coming out, it doesn't even really matter because Alameda got the FTT tokens at the issuance for cents on the dollar. Like, 10 cents a token. But the, the collateralization so, for this for this case, FTT, right, would be the value of the exchange, no, right? Because so say if you collect FTT tokens, you get discounts, people keep using it inherently. It's that's the use case where yeah. there should be value in it. And then like, I mean, it's shitty that it went to Alameda, but shouldn't those coins hold some kind of value? Or was it because the prop, so, it was, prop trading was pumping up the price? So the, so like initially at the outset, FTX, you know, they created these FTT tokens, right? And so Alameda by proxy got a huge allocation of them, which is 
fine. Like the, the distribution doesn't really matter so much. Okay. okay. It just matters that FTX allowed FTT to then be used as collateral to borrow legitimate stable coins from them. So they took a shit currency oh. that they just made up out of the blue and let Alameda use it as collateral for real money. Okay. okay. And, and ultimately people are saying like, well, where did the deposits go? But if they had these deals with Alameda, where Alameda had, you know, stable coins and real assets, uh, and then was going in market making with them and obviously not doing as good a job as people thought they were, um, you have a problem. You then become insolvent. And as the price of FTT collapsed, basically like the value of mm. the assets on their balance sheet just, you know, they skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, it's actually not that different from the Luna UST collapse um, or even that different from like the Ponzi's earlier in January, like Olympus Dow and, and um, yeah. Wonderland um, and things like yeah. this. Like it's, it comes back to the same thing. And, 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 and that is that, like there is no free lunch. So if you just create a token, like okay. you, if it doesn't have any cash flow attached to it, mm. like you, you can't assume that it's going to be valuable. And even if it does have a cash flow attached to it, it doesn't mean it's going to be valuable. It has no bearing on like being able to acquire assets in bankruptcy as a creditor. As a token holder, you just get wiped out, right? You well, because it's, it's not this, a security. Yeah. Well, because in this case, it was because it's it's tied to the exchange and the deposits, which if those are all run, then there is no value, right? So there was no mechanism to prevent a run, right? So that was one of the topics that we I kind of um, was asking on yeah. Friday to my friends. I couldn't get a clear answer. Like, you know, if we look at modern fiat and how banks are you know, regulated, you know, and how the banking system is created with fractional reserves, and then the central bank puts all the rules on, right? A lot, I mean, of course, the biggest number one factor of bank, preventing bank runs is just fiat. People will just believe in your institution of government, right? So obviously that's something that's just clearly still missing in, in the, the crypto space. But then secondly, you know, if there is some type of run or liquidity shock, right? The central bank steps in and then provides those short-term loans to alleviate that pressure, right? So people can then withdraw and uh, it's, it's the government essentially. Not, I mean, it's the Federal Reserve, some form of the government that's kind of guaranteeing this and allows for that liquidity. And of course, that's managed through interest rates later on, right? Why is like, I mean, if all these like finance bros are going to the space, why is this not something that has been thought as a piece of infrastructure that's being built into crypto, especially in you know the DeFi space? Like, what? Why? Why? Why isn't there um, someone building some mechanism to prevent bank runs essentially? Because in the, because you don't need them. Um, well, I don't know. It seems like, like you kind of needed something. But, but, so like, like, DeFi is distinct and separate from what was going on here. Like, what was going on here was, um, it was basically TradFi with no regulation. No, okay. Okay. Understand. It, it it wasn't crypto native. Like so, like I if you go on if you're on Ethereum and you know you decide, hey, you know I need to take out a loan, you know, and, and you want to use Aave or, or MakerDAO or Compound, one of these protocols, deposit your tokens into a smart contract, and then you're able to borrow at a collateralization ratio, and it's over collateralized. 
And because yeah. liquidations happen on chain and they're incentivized, there are always actors that are looking to liquidate people when the thresholds are met. And mm -hmm. protocols have specific mechanisms designed, like uh, MakerDAO has a auction mechanism set up uh, for liquidations. Yeah. Um, uh, where the collateral uh, in the vault will get auctioned off uh, and uh, the liquidator will get a fee for having doing so. Uh, and they get the yeah. collateral at a discount, which then they can go on the market and just flip that on a DEX uh, and go back to whatever unit of account that they want to hold, right? For, and they get, yeah. they get compensated. So you have this competition of these on-chain keepers, uh, these MEV bots looking to do these types of activities. So from a liquidation perspective, as long as your price oracles are set up correctly, you're never going to run into any kind of bank run, um, or you're never going to run into an issue of liquidating uh, positions and become insolvent. In terms of a bank bank run, um, the problem that you have on chain is that you have um, you have native assets like ETH or Bitcoin, and then you have things like stable coins. Some stable coins are fiat backed, and some are backed by um, you know multi collateral. Uh, like ETH, Bitcoin, and stablecoins, and then some are just backed by ETH. And you have different trade-offs within here. Like if it's backed by just ETH, then uh, you're not going to be able to just stay at one dollar. You're going to have a floating peg yeah. as a result, yeah. uh, and you're going to have to impose some kind of negative interest rate policy. Yeah. If you have a, a stablecoin that's 100% backed by fiat, then you're making the deal to be regulated heavily, right? Uh, like Circle or Tether, uh, you know, if the U.S. government issues, you know, some kind of, or any government issues, you know, some kind of um, declaration to them legally, right, and says you have to comply with this and freeze X, Y, Z accounts because these people are criminals, um, they can freeze the Tether coins or USDC coins in your account yeah. and you can't use them. They're worthless. Yeah. And so you take on that risk in terms of stable coins um, on, on chain, no free yeah. lunch. Um, what was your initial question? Because I don't, I don't want to get into a tangent here. Um, but I, like, I guess what I'm saying is that DeFi function just as it should. Um, it's withstood many stress tests all the way back to March 2020 during the COVID crash. And the reason is because you have over collateralized lending, you have incentivized liquidation by keepers on chain, um, and you have a pretty robust price oracle update system with Chainlink, and then also using Uniswap D3 TWAP oracles. So yeah, you have a pretty sound system overall. Um, yeah, so really, the regulatory piece needs to focus on um, the centralized exchanges uh, and correct. the games that yeah. they're playing. Yeah, and ultimately, yeah. Coinbase had much stricter regulatory practices that they had to follow um, than FTX, and that's where some of the favoritism and people are questioning, like, why is against the Gary Gensler favor FTX and allow them to get away with all this stuff? That people Correct. knew was going on and then didn't let coinbase offer a similar product coinbase had a coinbase lend product that they were going to offer to retail back last year where basically they would take your usdc put it in compound and at the time rates were about four percent so it'd be a you know a net positive for retail users right um yeah but that got nixed sec said it was a security so you couldn't do it meanwhile ftx has you know they had their yeah. ftx earn right paying five percent you know on your stable coins which, which is weird because FTX did have licenses in the U.S., but for some reason, this is a very gray space, right? It's not very clear in terms of regulation. But then it seems that probably Coinbase must have built the team internally themselves to be on 
purpose compliant as much as possible, probably to avoid something like this, right? Coinbase has a really long history. You know, um, like Kraken, they've been around for multiple cycles. And, um, you know, at the core of it, Brian Armstrong is like a Bitcoin, Ethereum maximalist. Like he he very much believes in, you know, the ethos of the space, decentralization, Mm -hmm. censorship resistance, um, Mm -hmm. privacy. Um, You know, it remains to be seen, you know, if that upholds forever, right? Um, You know, we've seen founders like, Kind of lose track of their core values over time, but Sam Bankman-Fried was never that. Right. And his come-up story is is actually like starting to get a lot of, I guess, uh, conspiracy theories around it um, coming to the yeah. light because you know his relationship with his his uh, the CEO of Alameda, who was also his girlfriend, who went to oh, MIT yes. with him, whose dad was in charge of Gary Gensler when Gensler was at MIT. And so there's this like, and then Bankman Fried's mom being, you know, heavily involved in California politics and, and fundraising for the Democratic Party. And then all of a sudden, Bankman Fried himself is the second largest yeah, Democratic donor to, you know, yeah. Joe Biden. And then in this last election midterms, he donated 37 million. Like, I mean, people are starting to question, like, wh- what are these insider ties? Where did they come from all of a sudden? Because it happened so quickly and so fast. Um it's not something that you usually see. And based off of the treatment of people like Brian Armstrong and Coinbase, people are like, hmm, like, what's up with this? It remains to be seen. I don't know. You know, it, it, gossip hearsay, but there are certainly connections and things there that will probably come out over time. Yeah. So, I mean, like, from your understanding of SBS background, then, well, it sounds like he has the pedigree. Just maybe again, again, sounds like something like Theranos. Like you have the pedigree, it's a nice story. It sounds like to me, just right place, right time, right pedigree. Was is like from your understanding, is he like a true technologist? Like someone like you know, guys early in the space, no, maybe like a Brian Armstrong or something. There's not, no, like the, the true technologists are like um, Vitalik Buterin, uh, Gavin Wood, um. Funny that I said Gavin Wood. Uh, uh, Anatoly uh, Yabakusenko, if, if I'm saying his name wrong, but the founders of, of um, you know, all these major blockchain projects. I mean, um, like they're the true technologists, and like yeah. because crypto is open and permissionless, if you really believe in the technology, you can learn it and you can build it and you can yeah. collaborate with people in an yeah. asynchronous manner and. Um, you don't take the, the other route because it, it's just against your values. And so yeah. that's why I don't believe he was a technologist, yeah. you know, at all. I, I think he was very much in, he, he bought into this notion of effective altruism, right? Maximize yeah. profit because I know what's best. I know how to donate capital better than everybody. So yeah. I'm justified in just but, going for max profit. But if you look at all of his activities, it, and okay, so I, I, this, this ties back to the question they asked originally, right? But then, um, it it just seems like this was just all traditional finance, but like where you sit at the intersect of crypto and I mean yes, the off ramp on ramp of, of fiat, right? So it's it it's gonna look very close to fiat. I mean again, again, I don't want to probably like to play devil's advocate. I don't want to completely disparage the fact that he's not a technologist. Like you and I are not technologists, but I think we need more high quality critical thinkers in the space. I think you need more diversified talent of different kind of backgrounds. You know, it can't just be pure technologists. I mean, so 
I, I've spent enough time in this space um, seeing who the technologists are. Like I can, like I could tell you, like honestly, like in every protocol, like I could point him out. He, he's not a technologist because if he was, yeah. he would have built the centralized exchange making commitments on chain as a validium yeah. on Ethereum, which mm. is an option for any centralized exchange that's out there. Yeah. Like that's what a technologist would do. And that, that's not him. Yeah. And I, I, but I think you would need, so I guess maybe that was the component I was missing, like the true spirit of the technology, but you still need someone who's also like a rah-rah cheerleader, you know, face man to make those human connections. Cause ultimately at the end of the day, you know, you also do need adoption and understanding if you want to go move away from, you know, the, uh, the fanatics to the early adopters to mass market, right? You, you do need some type of bridge and, you know, you need people who can sit between worlds. So, I mean, in, in this case, it was just too much over-indexing on one. Maybe maybe had the intentions of kind of doing that, but then he got lost in the weeds, got high on, you know, being becoming Icarus of sorts, right? But like, and, and also like, you know, if, like just like traditional finance, like you can get lost. I mean, we've been in markets for a long time. It's easy to be in the game for the wrong reasons, uh, just purely for greed or, I don't know, just for your ego or these kind of things, right? So it's just... Like my original question was like, why was there no, um, you know, central banking mechanisms built in these exchanges? But like, it's like as you pointed out in a you know longer explanation, essentially it's the wrong way to think about it because this is actually is more of the traditional finance space, right? It's more of an exchange, which you know, then uh, it seems it seems for now, at least on paper, that like you know the coin-based approach probably would have been the better approach, right? Like you know, be more conservative, try to work with regulators, make sure you're getting approved because you're sitting at that intersect. So it's not like my thinking, my framing is probably wrong in that, you know, I'm trying to smash modern fiat into crypto, but that's not the point of crypto, right? And I think that's what you were trying so to say, I essentially. Would, yeah, I, the way, like a good mental model, I think is that um, like central, if you like centralized exchange is in the middle, to the right of it is TradFi, to the left of it is DeFi. Right. And yeah. You don't really need the centralized exchange outside of its on off ramp function. And obviously, you know, there's a business opportunity there, right? So somebody is Correct. going to go for that and solve that problem. Treating. And if they can yeah. provide, you know, vertical, you know, scaling to their customers or vertical solutions, right? They're going to go ahead and do that, you know, rather than let you go on chain, you know, so easy. Yeah. But in reality, on chain transactions are just are just built better for transparency, for safety. Um, yeah. Well, you could argue with me on safety, but generally they're built better for transparency and security properties than centralized exchanges are. Because ultimately you are trusting an intermediary. Yes. Um, and the, you know, crypto is, the ethos is, you know, verify, don't trust. Um, or some people would say trust, but verify, you know, um, and that's the whole point of being able to run a node is that you're able to independently validate that, you know, the chain that you are linking up to is the canonical correct chain. And so if you're going to go ahead and send your transaction, then you, you're confident that you're not, you know, following somebody else's fork or, um, you know, you've been hacked, et cetera. So it seems like a good mental model is, um, is, is to identify where that kind of ethos is missing in the culture, like, you know, the right talent behind the, the organization. And then that could be reflected by looking onto the actual 
know, actions, the balance sheet, you know, how things are built from a technology infrastructure standpoint. And, you know, I, I'm sure then that probably means like if we were to use this as a road, like, you know, as like a, I don't know, oh. compass, we, we could probably point to a lot of other uh, exchanges or other institutions or, you know, organizations that are probably not very stable either and probably prone to more systemic uh, spread, right? So I'll give you an anecdote. Um, and I think it will like be a good good reference point. So like yeah. Um, like if you're ever around people from the Ethereum Foundation, like yeah. and they're in a group together, like it would be taboo to talk about price. Mm. Like you're not allowed to talk about price. Like. It's like first rule of Fight Club. Don't talk about Fight Club. The <laughs> yeah. the technologists don't talk about the markets or price. Yeah. And like that's that's the divergence. And so like people like SBF or you know a Do Kwan, who you know have some technological know how and skill. Actually, Do Kwan was the first you know launched the first blockchain in the Cosmos ecosystem that used a version of Wasm. I think they used Wasmer or WASMD uh, for their virtual machine where you could write smart contracts in Rust. And that sense has been forked uh, by Juno um, and by some other chains uh, that are you know, implementing Cosm WASM as a VM, uh, permissions or not, whatever. But the point being is you know, that was the first one within the Cosmos ecosystem that was doing WASM smart contracts. And they're also their UX, like with Terra Station, um, with the way that they their UI as well on things like Astroport, top notch, Anchor, yeah. all looked like great. But you had another component there that wasn't just like let's build the best product possible. It was like no, like let's enrich me and get me as yeah. much influence and grow as quick as possible. Yeah. And and so like the ethos of the crypto space is to like extract away that financial piece. So like that's what I mean. Like the true technologists mm. really aren't considering that, which is much different than what you see in the Web two founder technologist model, like Elon. Like yeah, yes, like yes, he is super focused on the details, but at the same time, he is also paying attention to the markets. I mean, that's just yeah. Well, that that can escape you know, that. Yeah, sailors another one. Like if you you know. Right, he started with MicroStrategy, right? You know, software as a service. Yeah. But then, you know, eventually just became this diehard Bitcoin maxi, um, focused on his balance sheet management. You know, as a yeah. uh, basically as a uh, treasury allocator, right? Yeah. Um, I, it it's just a little bit different, and the the problem that TradFi is having is it's having that issue of meeting crypto at that right point. Correct. And centralized yeah. exchanges aren't quite it. You actually have to yeah. go a little bit further. What Coinbase is doing is they're trying to go a bit further. And so they're trying to make it as easy as possible to self-custody your own funds. They have a great UX in their Coinbase self-custody wallet. They have MPC wallets that are coming soon. Um, they have an on-ramp to Solana, um, to Avalanche, which is a shit chain, um, to Ethereum. Uh, and then also to Ethereum rollups, uh, optimism. And so, mm. and, and then also not a rollup, but a sidechain, uh, Polygon. And so you're able as a user now to, you know, self-custody your assets on all these, I would say, higher quality chains with more security. And um, 
they're trying to make it as easy as possible. I think that's fantastic. And I think they're going to continue to build that way. And I think ultimately they will start to meet crypto a little bit closer to where it needs to be. Yeah. But I think, I think Binance, probably the same thing. Like if CZ continues to lead the company in the way that he's going, probably be similar. But what FTX was trying to do is put their stake in the ground and say, no, like we're the gateway to crypto. Everything runs through us. We know best, like customers should just stay with us, use our payments app, uh, clear with us, not go on chain. I mean, like my, my take on what you're saying is that I think at least for crypto, we're so or still so early along the adoption phase is that where you still do need more technologists to build the infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. And like, it's like building the first layer of internet. And at the point where the technology gets better and better, it's when you want to start layering the other kind of talent and people to get involved, then to kind of make it more widespread. But I, it seems like we're trying to jump ahead with too much money in general, which again, like I still think from VC to other, any other, you know, space of, you know, early stage investing or industries is that there's just too much money from QE. And we're just, this is just another effect. And I think the current recession is just that too, right? Just as, as an asset class and all these people getting, too much money and you know overvaluations and this kind of stuff, right? So I think that's the same problem. But it's 100%. I, I think it's, yeah. So I think that like if we were to think about this of how the space should unfold is you want more technology still, and there's still not even enough of that to power where the infrastructure or even on a product level where it should be. And one one interesting thing that my friend was telling me on Friday was that. Actually, FTX as a product was really good from a trading standpoint. Like there was no latency loss, like no slippage, nothing. But I think where if you go into Binance at number one, like you still have all sorts of product problems. So it wasn't so much like the product was bad or maybe, I don't know about technology wise, but maybe from a product user standpoint, it was actually, That's right. it was good. Everyone was recommending it, right? But then, you know, for other ones that are number one, not as good experience, right? But maybe technolo technology better, but I, I can't say. I, I, can't I don't know, man. It's like... The traders on CT are like, fuck FTX, like the execution sucks. <laughs> oh, like my execution, so Alameda can front run me? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I think that would probably depend on who you ask. I, I never used FTX, so I can't, yeah. I, I can't yeah. speak to it. Yeah, I would say probably we're about 10 years away from being able to build on top of crypto like you would build on top mm. of Web2 today. Mm. Zero knowledge proofs are going to change the industry. They're going to change a lot of things. Um, basically, you can prove something without revealing what that something is. Yeah. Um, so this will inherently lead to more privacy preserving protocols, less information leaking. And for things like DeFi, that's really important because like right now, basically like your, your wallet is like your Twitter account. You can just say, oh, here's my address yeah. and go look and see what my financial history is, which yeah. Nobody can do that with a bank account today. And that's kind of where you want to get to with accounts. Things like account abstraction are really interesting. So it's it's a bit of a more technical topic, but like on Ethereum, you have two types of accounts. You have a smart contract account and you have what's known as an externally owned account. Externally owned accounts are the only accounts that can initiate transactions. And so as a result of this, um, you need to have an externally owned account as a wallet. But this leads to the notion of like having to store, you know, 
12 to 24 uh, uh, seed phrase. And also too, then if you lose your keys, you're screwed. Like there is no do-overs and go-backs. If you have a smart contract, um, basically it's like having uh, a vault uh, where you store the keys in your vault and then you can recover the vault uh, socially by having like, let's say two or three people be signers for that vault. So like mm. you, me, and, um, you know, I don't know, you, me and Joe could have a vault. And then if I lose my keys, right, you and Joe could help me get my keys back and get access back to the vault. Also too, like the way you execute transactions on chain, like with an EOA, you have to first sign approval, then, you know, send the transaction, make a second call. Sometimes depending on the operation, if you're yield farming for the first time with new tokens, you might have to make like four or five approvals before you know, actually go into the transaction where you're depositing tokens um, uh, into the LP. And that's a real pain in the butt. Um, and with things like a smart contract wallet with account abstraction, you're able to bundle all those transactions into one uh, user-oriented intent um, and execute them atomically. And um, you also then don't need any ETH in your wallet because as long as you have any kind of funds in your wallet, um, the paymaster or the relayer can then just say, okay, like I'll pay the ETH for the transaction and I'll keep a you know a percentage of your tokens. And you know today, if you want to you know, get any transaction executed on, on I'd say 99% of blockchains, you have to have the native token in order to process the transaction. And sometimes acquiring the native token can be a pain in the butt because a centralized exchange in your jurisdiction might not have that token. You might not know anybody that has that token. There might not be like some general public faucet. So then you got to ask people, hey, can you send me a little bit of, you know, token, you know, in orders I can set up my account and then, you know, um, you can pay them back. But this also eliminates that problem. So account abstraction is something that's been worked on on Ethereum for quite some time, many years, but it's still probably, I would say, two to three years away um, because there's a lot of other things on the roadmap that are equally of importance. And so like from a UX perspective, you're just not gonna get that improvement for a little while. Um, and then also too, with scalability, like today, anybody can use Ethereum and pay a decent fee, but in a bull market, you know, you're looking at like, you know, twenty to thirty dollars to do a simple trade on Uniswap, um, which isn't great from a UX perspective, right? No. Um, and so, what a lot of what has been going on is 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 working on, um, you know, how do we scale the chain, and you know, how do we scale execution through having you know these other chains settle on top of us called rollups and outsource the execution, and so that's being worked on, and it, it's going to be time. Um, yeah. You also have people coming up with new solutions every day. Like there are academics that are entering the space that have been working on distributed systems and peer-to-peer -peer wireless communication that, you know, three years ago started working on crypto and now are coming up with brilliant ideas hmm. on ways to implement new things. And, um, you know, one being like a shared security methodology. Um, and so there's gonna be more of that. You know, there's a ton of cryptographers already in the space, but I think, more cryptographers will enter the space. Um, there's a, a very small amount of economists in the space, but actually it's like perfect breeding ground for economists because you can study, you know, you can study a macro economy like everything's on chain. Life cycle like, in six months. Yeah, you know everything that's happening, literally, right? You, there's no question of having weird mathematical 
abstraction on, on social human being behaviors, you could actually literally see the behavior by, by consequence on every transaction, yeah. right? Um, so wait, hold on. So there, I, I think, so I'm gonna take a stab at trying to understand the abstraction sure. from what you said. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's two things. One, one thing is ultimately what you're saying, I'm gonna guess that if you are gonna continue in this space, and if say if you're long-term, it's pretty much a huge infrastructure play. And that's very nuanced because no one, it's I think directionally people kind of know the right direction, but we don't know the exact solution and then everyone's kind of working towards that, right? So if you're investing or if you're building or you want to be a part of this future where this really does disintermediate, like you told me, like this intermediates actual financial institutions, we're still like a few decades out probably to see something mature. Like, I mean, maybe, maybe you know, somewhere along we hit the J curve and it can accelerate faster within the 10 years, maybe it's faster. I mean, like you said, it's 10 years, 20 years, maybe 15 years out, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. It's like, it's very infrastructure driven. If you're looking at the future, like, I guess if you want to be involved, at least you have to have the understanding of that component. You can't just abstract away everything and like, oh, we're building applications and, you know, it's, you know, you can't like throw away the ethos and, the, you know, the technology guys that are part of this, because that's actually what this whole point of it at the end of the day. The second thing is, if I'm to understand what you're saying is, Everything you just talked about with what's that called again? Um, the account um, account abstraction. Yeah, account abstraction. It, at scale, and I don't know if there's any other use cases. Are you telling me does that make centralized exchanges obsolete then? Um, it's not going to make them obsolete until you have. Like, so I guess what I alluded to earlier when we were talking was there's a way to build a centralized exchange that um post commitments of their transactions on chain yeah um and so you can have an off-chain order book match orders and then post a commitment and say okay you know this is the new state update of these accounts based off of these orders and this is what these accounts did put that compress that information into a proof post a proof of that to ethereum send the data to um it's called the data availability committee or another blockchain that you know will take care of data availability or you can pay a little bit more and put that on ethereum as well and it's a way then for people to have um confidence in the integrity of the computation that's been done and yeah. you know with regards but, to their trades but that doesn't doing have to project on an exchange like that, though, right what's that that doesn't have to happen on an exchange though correct no no um this is this would be a way to like have a hybrid decentralized centralized exchange where you're yeah. posting commitments of what you're doing on chain so they can be tracked in real time and verified because ultimately that's the issue here is that you're just putting your money in a black box and you don't really know what's right. going on versus if you put your money on chain even if you get hacked let's just say because you were stupid and like you entered your seed phrase into a website but <laughs> yeah but people know yeah but like at least you can say, okay, like it was on me. I did it was my fault. That feels a lot better than yeah. oh my God, like I trusted these guys not to Correct. lose my yeah. money and they lost my money. Yeah. That's that feeling which is horrible. What happened. Yeah. The other issue that you have in crypto, which is kind of orthogonal to all this, and I think maybe we can this is like I think a much richer conversation and it has to deal with human greed. And unfortunately in crypto, there is this very strong magnetic pull to these dear leader types you know whether yeah. it's a trump or hitler in our space it, it could be like suzu it could be do Kwan, richard hart you know um you name it 
like, and it was SBF. You know, there's this saying on crypto Twitter, don't become the main character. That's how you, right? <laughs> yeah. And all these main character types pop up and they're able to get all these, these suckers to believe them. And, and not even like people that are just like suckers as in like, you know, retail plebs, but like actual VCs in the space that, that are supposed to know what they're doing that have a track record of pretty good legitimacy getting involved with these people, clearly not have done enough due diligence. And it's just unfortunate because it, apparently, if you look at history, like this has happened cycle after cycle after cycle. And touching back on like, why, why is this possible? And touching back on something you said earlier, which is that crypto really isn't ready for the size of investment that it's getting. Correct. But because with tokenization, you can get mm -hmm. instant liquidity, unlike anywhere else in financial markets, like that's the incentive for people. It's if you're a builder, it's, well, I can just build this project, get some seed round from a couple of VCs, you know, raise a series A or a series B, print my token. I get some exit, even if I can only exit 10% of my allocation, I oh, probably yeah, like 100x my net worth already. Correct. And six months of it fails, I'm out. Yeah. And you saw that a lot during the bull market. You saw a lot of VCs, even legitimate ones, use that type of strategy. And it really hurt the space. And it's unfortunate because all these infrastructure projects that you and I are talking about actually need more funding and, and more research and more development. And we could be a lot further along if we weren't misallocating capital like we are. Like that's the tragedy yeah. I think of like what this whole blow up speaks to. Yeah, my friend was, I, I, I don't know what the tweet was that he was sending me, but yeah. it was something along the lines yesterday he was sending me along that like uh it was a joke but like it's a joke that that it's a conspiracy that the fed sent sbf to the crypto world to destroy the industry so you know it, which is like essentially this it's could possible. really put a could put a huge freeze on on like you said what you just described like if there's a big fallout tied with the recession that's just going to slow down the, the acceleration possibly I, I think for the people who already dug in that's not going to change those people but uh you know in terms of talent, which is very important in terms of funding, which is very important to keep building that infrastructure, that could have, uh, you know, long-term effects where it just, the, and, and then like the I big, said in the, yeah, the last session is that you're gonna, this talent will be competing with other exciting spaces to them, right? So. Um, you're hundred percent right. Yeah. yeah. The, the biggest issue that you're facing with crypto talent in terms of development is the combination of, of full stack and front end. Like yeah. Coinbase, for instance, they hire a lot of Web2 legacy people and like Goldman Sachs people. Like they don't hire crypto native people that often. The reason being is they're much more focused on that UI, UX piece, and also the sales piece for institutional, right? But like a typical crypto, crypto protocol, like I don't know if you've ever used Curve Finance, but like Curve was set up with an interface like literally from 1993, like intentionally. And yeah, for crypto yeah. natives, it's fun. But for like anybody else, it's like, oh my no, God, how not. the fuck do I use this thing? Yeah. This is correct. correct. You know, and um, that's where a lot of the Web2 talent, when they come next bull cycle, will be able to layer in and help because it, it, they're experts at this. Yeah. The other thing that's very helpful that's underrated, but I think will become more obvious is that Apple just switched 
from C++ to Rust as their core oh. language. Interesting. And Rust is something that's extremely popular uh, in crypto for because number one, um, you can compile Rust down into Wasm or a lower level virtual machine, which you know is compatible with Web2 stuff even, even today. Yeah. And so that's very attractive. Um, also Rust comes with what's called Cargo, which is this uh, basically this testing tooling suite built into it. Um, yeah. And no other language really has that, as far as I understand. That's another reason. Um, and people love it. It's got this huge community and network effect that's growing. And Solana is, is primarily in Rust. Um, Near, you can write in Rust. The, the Cosmos chains are, are now, for, for their smart contracting chains, going to be having Rust. Everything in Ethereum is not Rust, but I could totally see in the future there being a roll-up or something that um, uh, has Rust as an option. Um, where you can uh, compile down into still into EVM bytecode in, in some way. Um, actually, Fuel is is not Rust, but it's like it's a hybrid between Rust and Solidity. Um, but the point being is like I see that as a major like it's an easy pathway for a Web two person to go. Well, I already have these skills. Like I don't really need to learn any a core competency. I just need to learn about the industry and like how to apply my skills. And I think that's like a huge, going to be a huge bridge for um, getting these Web2 uh, front end full stack developer types like into the industry and really getting the UX to where it needs to be. Yeah. Let, let me take, uh, so on my last discussion in crypto on Friday, um, there was one line of thought where like, if this is really truly bad for the industry and it does set it back or, you know, it, it you don't get as much funding or talent going into it. Um, and if say regulation is now looking at this, like you know, there's a huge target on the back of crypto. So uh, my friend thinks that it may fracture the crypto world, right? Where one has to go deeper into the shadows and then there's gonna be one line of crypto with you know, like central bank, digital currencies and some type of integration. Do you, do you see this splintering? Because regulation can't regulate all of crypto. It's like, it's impossible because it's supposed to be decentralized, right? So, but it's, it's like, if I'm hearing what you're saying, it's more positive and more collaborative into the future where you think there can be these bridges and the technology will be able to work with some type of intermediate of, of um, you know, regulation, uh, infrastructure, and the actual ethos of crypto. So do you, do you see it as actually in the next 10 years evolving towards coming together or splitting? And like, what's the credence in either? A good question. Uh, definitely don't want to be a LARP um, and say I know, but like I could see, I could see a multitude of possibilities on that axis. Um, yeah. Like I think you're reading me right in terms of what my hopes are. Yeah. I'm very skeptical because of what I've seen from TradFi's interaction with crypto. They basically think it's just a casino that needs to be regulated and gifted to them. They don't really see yeah. the value proposition, and so. That's problematic. And like, actually with a lot of my research at EY, like that was my hope is that I can publish some stuff and help educate some people on the nuances and get them to yeah. think, you know, through some of these details a little bit more, but um, yeah, that's a, the, the scalability piece is just not there yet for any blockchain really um, to absorb the amount of capital and the, the like visa level transactions, right? 10,000 transactions per second. Not like, 
not like inner protocol voting transactions like on Solana, but like actual real transactions. We're just not there yet. We will be there. So that's like, I think that's a huge hindrance, number one. Um, in terms of the regulatory front, I think a lot of it will depend on the regimes. If you look in the United States, the Republican regime has been extremely um, more sympathetic to crypto. Um, in fact, the House Financial Services Committee is going to shuffle in a way because of this election that's going to be much more favorable to crypto. Bitcoin is something that some U.S. politicians have already adopted as like, I'm going to wrap myself in Bitcoin, you know, Ted Cruz being one of them. And so as a result of this, like, I think you will see more favorable regulation in the U.S. And why? Because you have this notion of free markets, right? And historically, Republicans have always favored free market solutions and less regulation. Which is, that's just weird because that's one of the only few things that remain true in the party probably then like everything else is just diverged but like that's actually quite surprising to hear like oh so there actually is something substantial from like their actual philosophy from the past carrying forward in terms of you know um, being sympathetic yeah. yeah in europe it's more of on a set track they have this i don't remember what the acronym is called mica and now they have this mica 2 that they're pushing and basically they want to approve who can issue stable coins. They want to KYC any transaction that you do on chain that's of any value over like, you know, $1,000 or something. Um, they want full KYC and control of everything. And I think that's actually more dangerous. And because they're on this stable path versus in the US, as you know, we will oscillate between extremes politically uh, very often, right? We'll, we'll go from Black Lives Matter to like, not caring about anything social justice related. I mean, it's just, yeah. it, it happens. Um, I think that there are gonna be other players globally that step up, you know, like Balaji obviously is like always championing India. I think um, Southeast Asia, Japan actually, strangely enough, because they've invested a lot in learning about crypto already, they have a better regulatory framework from my understanding. They're also facing a population, you know, crisis, and um, they're starting to relax some of their uh, visa policies already this year. Yeah, like I definitely see globally an avenue for more favorable crypto domains because you can raise capital from anywhere in the world. Yeah. You can be global with your team. You can be decentralized, and like as a sovereign, why wouldn't you want? you know, crypto protocols to pay taxes in your jurisdiction. Of course you would want that. That's an easy revenue stream for you. Yeah. Like, so I guess what I'm saying is like, I think that it's possible that the U.S. could lead in sensible regulation. Like I'm, I haven't lost all hope yet. And yeah. there's been a huge advocacy group building uh, with a lot of lobbying from traditional VCs like Andreessen Horowitz, but also like Coinbase to Masari, um, you know, to others in the industry. So I, I'm, I'm not all like on the bear case. Yeah, yeah, you're very, you're very hopeful. You're very, well, I mean, it, it shows that, you know, how, how deep you've dug in. So it's, I, I mean, ultimately you do, you do need the optimist. And then of course you'll need the pessimist to make it more pragmatic to make the solutions work, but you kind of need both, right? So the pessimistic case is that 
basically all on and off ramps are, are banned in like the US and Europe. And if you want to get cryptocurrency, you either have to like get paid in crypto directly, yeah. mine it, or you have to be in one of these other jurisdictions. And that's, yeah. if that happens, then probably what would happen is, and my guess would be, it would probably accelerate a parallel track for the world financial system actually, because yeah. I think that emerging markets, I mean, here's an example. In Argentina, a lot of people use the Binance app. Unfortunately, yeah. they're trusting Binance, but they use it because you can send US dollar stable coins to people yeah. free of charge. And you can store your wealth in the US dollar and you don't have to worry about the central bank raising interest rates 67 right. you know, percentage actually, points. Things could actually function properly, right? Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I think all, there are a lot of places in the world where this is needed. Payments is a huge use case, micropayments. And I could very well see it in a draconian scenario where you do have this bifurcation. And yeah. I don't think crypto will die. It would just, to your point, be set back in the developed world for a while. But, you know, like AI grow, and like AI is right there. I mean, like some people yeah. think we're going to see the singularity. I think regulators will start fudding AI really hard as it gets more successful and they get scared. And I think crypto will fall to the back burner. I mean, people can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, correct. Well, especially regulators. <laughs> well, people can, yeah, regulators can't. Yeah, correct, correct. So, I mean, like, that's that's very interesting. And it if it does... I have a perspective... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, wait. I was just going to say, my my perspective is is, I think, like, I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it for the personal fulfillment and building towards a better world. And I, like, I, I fully believe that crypto can help improve the world. A lot of people are in it because they're like, well, I just want to make it the next cycle because these coins are going to 100x. Yeah. And, you know, like culturally, it's in the culture you saw in the ICO phase, right, where everybody had an ICO. It, it's very difficult to shake. Uh, you see it in equities, it, at Robinhood, Wall Street bets, like it's there. It's the future of the modern financial. I mean, it's well, okay, it's, it's a few things like. It's just human nature, number one. Number two, it's actual economics, actual scarcity, right? And then, of course, that's manifested. If, and I don't want to get maybe too philosophical, but it really is the root of capitalism, ultimately, right? And how we have yes. structured the modern financial system. And I guess, in a way, if you think philosophically, like cryptocurrency is that counter to that of the paradigm shift, possibly, of thinking of a new world in a different kind of way. But ultimately, if you do intersect, like you can't get rid of human nature, right? And there's always going to be, I mean, and it's like I like I said in the other episode, it's not like speculation is not 100% bad for modern financial markets. It has its role to play as a feature. And I think that just that that hasn't, we're not at a point where you can intersect that, like you said, with crypto, right? So it's just... It's going to be a long way off before, you know, it makes sense for mass and speculation is controlled and the technology can support it. But I mean, like what, what I think what we have to accept is and maybe the technologists have to accept that it's like you're that is going to be a facet that's always going to be there. And it's more like how can you manage and build so that it can coexist together? Because if not, we are going to get this bifurcation. We are going to get pockets yeah. of the world where it's going to be crypto led where you can off ramp 
to actually get value into the physical world. Because the whole point ultimately is like, we live in the physical world. I need to use it to get what I want economically, right? I need resources. There's scarcity. I want to get food. I want to get land. I want to you know, enjoy my life. So if that happens, you're going to get crypto world and you're going to get like old institution world. And that's going to be very weird. So ultimately, yeah, I think it is better if it comes together. Um, that's that's an interesting line of thought, though, I guess. So I, this is going to sound like, I think a little bit extreme, but like, I think the product market fit, I think the reason crypto exists is to disintermediate financial institutions, because eventually you'll be able to express every function of every primitive of a financial institution. You're already able to do like 80% of it with very primitive smart contracts, but like you'll, you'll be able to get to hundred percent. And when you can get to hundred percent with privacy, there'll be no more need for banks. And like freeing the world of banks, in my opinion, is that that's freedom, that's liberation. That allows us to achieve like the utopia AI scenario because now like we care much more about community. We care much more about maybe like ideas like UBI. Like we care more about helping our neighbors. You know, we're less yeah. playing these PVP metagames all the time with each other. Um, yeah. And yes, like, you need that. You need the competition. You need people to want to get paid. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think actually like that's a perk of the way that the system works. But like allowing intermediaries to just step in there um, and dictate how capital flows um, just because now they're entrenched, right? And they have, you know, lots of lobbyists and global connections with world leaders um, where they can get policy written for themselves to keep themselves in the game. Um, you know, they're no longer adding value. I mean, like there's, as we talked about oftentimes, right? Like in the financial crisis, banks lost more money than they made in their entire history. Like in one crisis, if you added all the losses together and like there's something wrong there. And with crypto, if you can focus on getting people on board it correctly and not in this gambler mentality, but in this like, I'm actually taking agency back. I'm taking responsibility back. Um, I'm taking charge of my life. If you can get people to, to onboard in that way, you start to change their relationship with money and you start to change the way that um, people perceive these things and, and the action, power that the actual, they have. Actual action, yeah, correct. So Wait, wait so in, in this kind of utopian world or like if you can achieve 100% disintermediation, where does that power coalesce or does the power get distributed across a truly like all these truly decentralized nodes across literally every person or like where, where like because does, does that is the end game doesn't disappear is that so that's true like so then it's because it's so hard to imagine a world like that it's just like it's something that you you don't know what you it don't is. know right right so like it, it just seems weird that like if you think about how powerful the players in the financial institution are. I mean, power does just typically shift around historically from different forms of civilization or philosophies of how things are run. Like power still exists. So I'm just kind of wondering where does, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it almost seems impossible that power could just be like equalized like that. You know what I mean? Like, like I think, like thinking about it in terms of just like a convex optimization, right? Like you want to be at one end of the curve. Like I think there are a lot of benefits to having these verticalized economies of scale, large banks. Yeah. 
And the benefits are that for, for large corporations, like they can literally get all of their financial needs taken care of by people that are competing for their services, right? right. Um, yeah. and, and that's what keeps the global economy going. So like there are huge benefits to that. But on the flip side, for your average retail user, the experience has become really poor. Um, and oh, so bad, <laughs> right? Globally, yeah. this is agreed upon, globally, right? And globally, everywhere people, I've been, just... people can't get bank accounts, right? Like, and yeah. then they have to deal with payday lenders, and or they have to like you know keep their money as we talked about in a currency that's debasing. And so, mm. like, I think it's it's time to unbundle and try the convex optimization on the other side of the scale. And like one thing I've learned in crypto about protocol design is like usually the best benefits are you either get everything together, like and have one actor monolithic control everything, or yeah. break it down into all of its component parts as much as possible. And you allow like the division of labor to flourish basically. And it's a power mm -hmm. sharing. Within there, you're gonna have fulcrums, right? And so like yeah. in this in this worldview, if it's Bitcoin and Ethereum and you know Solana, right? Some of these early token holders, right, will have more power in some way, right? Um, or like the validators that are running the network will have a little bit more say so, right? Like yeah. it, it, there will be spots where power will consolidate and like maybe like that, that piece of the trade-off is not great. So I don't know the answer to that, but I do think that we can get to a world where basically everybody has their wallet with their private key on their cell phone, which makes so much sense because you carry your cell phone everywhere, right? Um, it's encrypted in a secure enclave on your phone. You can go log into your wallet. Immediately, you load up your, your light client node, which connects to the blockchain, validates the last X amount of block headers to sync you onto the chain. You know, you're connected, you send your transaction, you know, get it back within a second, you've got confirmation, coins are back in your account, you're good to go. I mean, I think that's that's the end game. That's the goal. And if we can get there, and you really never need a bank again. Um, no. It's, but I think that that's hard. Like the CBDC thing. Like China's very much going that approach. Um, the British government is very interested in CBDCs. Ironically, like central bank um, digital currencies. I I think uh, you know Circle in the U.S. with U.S. Decoin is is kind of like the de facto. Um, private market solution for a central bank digital currency. And I hope it stays that way. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm against CBDCs. Like, I, I think giving like a central bank, you know, direct access to billions of consumer bank accounts is really a bad idea. Um, it's really bad for privacy. It's really bad for security. I mean, the US government has shown, for instance, that they're, they're not very good at security. They've been hacked how many times? Um, data leaks in the last couple of years. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's a stretch. It's, it's going to be a battle. Um, oh yeah. Huge hurdles. Snowden is still not a U.S. citizen, right? No, no, it's um, crazy. Or he's not back in the U.S. I, I don't know what his citizenship status is, but like, I guess like, that's just like, um, just an anecdote to say that like, we're not at a point yet socially, like where things like privacy agency, freedom, self-sovereignty are values that people really care about yet. Um, 
Yeah, they don't care until it affects them. That's that's the problem. So you just want to abstract it away. But that's just human nature again, right? So and it like is. I, I I think to to reach where you want to go, like say, I mean, worst case, you're somewhere in the middle of that vision, which is not terribly bad because you have options in the world then, right? But we're, we're talking about bit. yeah, like, like we're talking about trying to fight with people who will not want to let go of that power. I mean, like there is a big conflict of interest for these, you know, modern. Yeah, institutions, financial institutions, to to not adopt this, you know, it's, it's taking their taking their lunch, right? So, and then at the same time, if you really want to have widespread acceptance, you kind of do need a dear leader to bridge the two worlds, then, right? Because that's just how humans are. I mean, unless unless you're telling me like <laughs> technology is so powerful that product just does everything, it's not usually the case, right? Like you kind of need some type of figure, like a Musk figure, to like ah, people come follow me to the great promised land and so I mean, it's 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 hard. These are hurdles. These are hurdles, right? And along those ways, people get corrupted, and people the powers will want to fight you, right? So, yeah, it's it's interesting. I, think, I like, yeah, but I mean, I think what I like is that we kind of laid it on the table, and then we can kind of follow where that goes. Because uh, this is not going away anytime soon, and I think you're right, man. There, it holds a lot more promise than than I re realized because I'm not in this space. So it's just like it's good to hear that what potential it is and. And I kind of, we kind of need that. And we need more people telling the stories. We need more people being on the mainstream channels. We need more media, like more movies, TV shows, probably showing the promise, right? Like, it's just kind of like, you know, the whole Peter Thiel thing of, of, you know, the four quadrants of different countries, right? You know, you have like people who are indefinitely pessimistic where like China used to be, where they would just copy everything. America is like indefinitely optimist where, you know, free money forever. And then, you know, but now we have to go back to the spectrum where we have to be definitely optimists, where we have to manifest the future, plan for the future, and build the future. And it, it, I think the turmoil we're seeing in the world now, like all the pain and all the strife between, you know, infighting political parties, ideologies, it's just a manifestation of the pain. And it's because we're going through a transition, I think, ultimately. And hopefully these technologies can help us transition into a better world. But that being said, the transitions are always painful, you know, historically speaking, right? So, I don't know. Um, may, I mean, any any final thoughts? I don't want to keep you from your dinner. So, I mean, we could always continue the conversation for sure in the future, but uh, maybe we could wrap up anything that you have any insights from our discussion. Yeah, uh, I think the like I said, I, I I think the FTX thing is really unfortunate. Um, and I think it's not really representative of what crypto is. And yeah. I, I hope, I guess, is that we can have better products and less scammers as we go into the next economic cycle, which is only going to be like 18 months away. And like, if we can not sell ourselves out right and go crazy over ponzi coins and nfts and like corporate sponsorships and metaverse bullshit and different grifters entering the space yeah you know like we'll be in a more sustainable place and i think every cycle as the technology matures will become more sustainable over time and i think actually eventually when we get to like 2035 we'll probably have a period of like a great moderation where you're done with a lot of these economic haywire cycles and you have a lot more stability um, and, the, and the technology is done improving at least for a long time um, until something else 
replaces it. I think it will be like TCP IP, just continue to you know run. Um, so I would encourage anybody to um, you know take control of their own funds, even if it's like a small portion. Like go on chain, set up a Gnosis Safe wallet, um, set up an Argent wallet. Um, you know, at worst case, set up a MetaMask wallet, EOA. Um, you know, just interact with some protocols, see what it's like. Gas is really cheap right now. Um, and you get kind of like a sense of, you just get more of a sense of the space. Like you'll just have a better intuition about it than, um, you know, just reading about it through various media or social media, et cetera. But yeah, definitely uh, really fun. I'm sure I said a lot of stupid stuff, but. Um, hey, we're all just monkeys. Of popping our hands together so this is true yeah i like that better than being a rat trapped in uh in a prime number maze oh yeah well yeah hopefully yeah, that's true but uh another discussion for another day um so how how can we follow you or where would you like to point people you know if they want to get in contact or if you know read your works or sure. uh get in touch yeah, just check out check out my LinkedIn. Um, okay, I'll pop it up. I have a lot of writing on there. I'll continue uh, different thoughts. Um, and then if you need to reach out to me, the LinkedIn DM is, yeah. is fine. Is there any way we can convince you to get back on a public persona Substack so we can see some writings? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm actually working on something. I do have a uh, a Substack, uh, a new one that I'm I'm getting ready to launch soon. So. Okay. I'll certainly let you know. Yeah, let me know. And then, of course, hopefully when uh, your EY publications come out, we could also read some of your more technical works for actual proper institution and research. So I guess there's a lot to look forward to. And I, you know, thank you for your time today, Pat. I really appreciate your insights. Uh, it means a lot. It's my pleasure, sir. Okay. Thanks, man. Bye. -bye.